Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. Today I want to continue the conversation on wise understanding that I started last week, which is the first factor of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. So it's number one right at the top of the list. It's sometimes called wise view or wise understanding. And I like to back up first before we get into the Eightfold Path to talk a little bit about what I spoke on last time about how the Buddha taught to give a little bit of context for this Eightfold Path that he taught. Because one of the things that's interesting about the Buddha's teachings is that he wasn't really living in a tradition that was very heavy on orthodoxy or belief. You know, there were some deeply ingrained belief systems at the time that the Buddha lived, but so much of spiritual practice was more about what you did, more about what you developed or cultivated, the word is bhavana, than what you believed in. And so when we're talking about wise view or wise understanding, the Buddha is really talking about the process by which we clarify our view, the process of the practices that we take into our lives to develop wisdom. And so he's not necessarily pointing to out there in the world some ultimate truth or something that we're supposed to know or philosophical understanding of anything. He's really pointing to a process by which we develop wisdom in the main catalyst for wisdom is meditation. So if we can learn to study the direct experience of our lives, if we can learn to experience the moment-to-moment movements of the mind, we learn to tell when the mind is caught in distortions, when the mind is caught in reactive patterns, and we can learn how to unhook from some of these movements that are really subtle. And so wise view, wise understanding is really both the beginning and the culmination of the path. It's both the seed and the fruit, if you will. Right? If we're going to embark on any spiritual path, if we're going to say, okay, I want to live a contemplative life where being mindful is important to me, we usually have to have some degree of uh, willingness to live that type of committed life. Right? And it doesn't have to be any major commitment. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got to put on the robes and you know, shut down your life. But I think ultimately it's a discipline. You know, the Buddha calls the Eightfold Path Dharma, which is you know, his teaching, and discipline. And so you know, we find that if we're going to develop any type of practice, it's going to take place over time. It's going to be something that is a gradual path. It's a gradual process to developing wisdom. And I almost hate this because, you know, I think my conditioned Western mind, I want the results quickly. You know, I want to be able to sit down in meditation and clear my mind or empty my mind of thoughts, only to find out that my mind doesn't have any interest in stopping thinking anytime soon. So then I have to actually sit down with my mind and develop a relationship to it. 
then I have to have almost this conversation with the mind, this awareness of the mind, this gentle, patient, non-interfering awareness to be able to actually get to know it. You know, we approach the practice sometimes with the same level of control we want in the world. You know, I want to be able to just tell someone to do something and for them to listen. But if I really want, <laughs> if I really want some freedom in my relationships, I got to actually get to understand people. I've got to actually talk to them and hear about them and, and see where they, their perspectives and views. And we do the same thing with our mind and meditation. So it opens up this almost relational wisdom. Does that make sense? Where we have to learn how to come into relationship with our mind gradually over time. And, um, you know, so the Buddha's teaching on the Eightfold Path is it's his personal roadmap. It's the path that he took to a deep psychological transformation within himself. And the Buddha's not interested in the world out there. He's not actually, this is what's unique to a lot of other spiritual religious traditions, is the Buddha's not interested in metaphysics or you know, the nature of reality or material reality or any of that stuff. He's only interested really in what happens in here. And so in this way, he's only really interested in psychology. So awareness is the faculty by which we cultivate wisdom. Many moments of awareness over time means more intimate experience of what's occurring in the present moment. And so as we practice directing our awareness to the present moment, we develop a deeper intimacy and connection and an understanding of our lived experience. And this is what we would call wise view. So I want to read this quote again from last time because I think it's just a really great concise way to talk about wise view. And it's by Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says, the importance of right view or wise view can be gauged from the fact that our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have bearing that goes beyond mere theory and concepts. He says, our views or our understanding governs our attitudes. It governs our actions and our whole orientation to existence. Our views might not be even clearly formulated in our mind. We may only have a hazy grasp of our beliefs. But whether they're formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, these views have far-reaching influence. They structure our perceptions, order our values, and crystallize into the framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of our being in the world. And so... The Buddha taught about two aspects of wise view that we come into as we practice. He says, one is we realize that what we do, let me mute that. He says, what we do has consequence. So this is the wise view of karma or the wise view of ownership of action that I talked about last week. So karma means the movements of our thoughts, our speech, our action, that what we do through our active expressing of thoughts or speech or behaviors, that they have consequence. And that whatever you do, you get better at. So as you learn to communicate in certain ways, those communication patterns get stronger. As you learn to worry 
right? I don't remember when I was taught to worry, but it seems to be something that came on the hard drive. As I participate in worrying, worrying becomes a more stronger inclination of my mind. It's like, as, a, as I practice it, it gets reinforced. And then my mind's more likely to go to it because it's used to it. You know, I noticed this, my wife and I joke about this because when we, when we take a weekend to just chill, we try to see how long we can chill before one of us starts planning about something. And it's actually quite crazy. We'll be like 10 minutes, 20 minutes in, and we'll see that probably both of us has, have individually labeled like five or six times that we wanted to say something. We caught it. And then it'll be about 15 or 20 minutes where it's like, hey, so what do you want to do later? Or, hey, you know, what do you do you want to go on a trip next month or whatever it may be? You know, we can't not plan. <laughs> and so it's just interesting to watch our karma, our, our habits, our inclinative tendencies of thoughts and then our speech and our behavior. And we want to practice this wise view that whatever um, whatever things we do, whatever behaviors we enact, they get reinforced and they grow in strength. And so the Buddha talks about this relative truth of practice, that whatever you practice, you get better at. And so you want to actually try to incline your mind towards wholesome mind states. You want to actually try to interrupt the stream of your habit to practice instead of being greedy, practicing generosity and renunciation. Instead of the mind, when it wants to um, get caught in resentment or blame, we want to practice forgiveness and, and compassion. Or the wisdom of boundaries with people that are you know, causing harm in our lives. And instead of getting caught in delusion of, of comparing and judging and you know, this kind of natural hierarchy that the mind creates in our human ecosystem, it's like... You know, we, we tend to put ourselves amidst the tribe in different rankings and orders. You know, we just see the kind of delusion of the minds comparing and judging. And so we want to practice living our lives more simply and with generosity and with compassion. And um, this influences the habit of the mind. The more that we practice, the better, the stronger that groove gets, that pathway gets in our, in our mind. So here's the emphasis in this wise view of karma. The Buddha talks about the liberating potential of what the mind's doing in every moment. So if we can see that the mind is moving out and, and creating thoughts and creating you know, impulses to say something and do something, we can actually find that space. And we talked about this last week between the stimulus and the response. We can find that space where we can choose how we want to respond. And the Buddha is saying you're in your choice is really where your freedom is. He says, you can't really pick a lot what happens to you. You can in, in some ways, but you know, and this is what I'm going to talk about today, but there are these inarguable aspects of life, like impermanence, that we can't quite prepare for impermanence. We can't quite prepare for change. We can't quite get our environment to be as certain and as secure as we want it to, but we can relate to our environment differently. Instead of clinging and controlling 
and feeling threatened and getting violent and argumentative, we can learn a different way to deal with the vulnerability of life. And so this is what I want to talk about today, which is called super mundane wise view, which is more of this ultimate truth. And the Buddha teaches this through the framework of the Four Noble Truths. So y'all got this so far? Karma is basically however you respond to things gets stronger. So if we respond with greed, respond with hatred, respond with delusion, those forces are growing inside our, our habits. And if we learn to respond in a different way, we're building different tendencies. You know, I, I just say in the simple way that from the Buddhist perspective, happiness is a collection of good habits. It's not a place you ever arrive at. It's really a culmination of all the things that you learn how to relate to the world with. But the Buddha also talks about actually piercing through this, this arrow that causes suffering. And this arrow comes from this uh, craving and clinging, the attachment to things to wanting things to be different than the way that they are. And so this is how we develop insight through meditation as we start to look at and study the mind's tendencies to not just to notice how we're relating to what's happening, but how we're misperceiving what's happening. Does that make sense? So the Four Noble Truths are really about perception. It's about changing our perception. And so the Buddha teaches these as, as his first teaching after, you know, supposedly his own awakening. He comes to a group of friends that were pra practitioners with him on his spiritual path. And he delivers this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And the interesting thing about the Four Noble Truths is that these aren't truths with a capital T. Again, the Buddha's really talking more about tasks, more about practices, reflections, to try to look into one's mind to see what is the root of our suffering. So in the relative sense, a lot of my consequences in my life come from unskillful behaviors, unskillful thoughts, unskillful things that I say, harmful behaviors to myself and others. But the Buddha is saying in the, this aspect of wise understanding, the Four Noble Truths, he's saying, why do you even do that? And he's saying, because you misperceive things. And so you have to practice these four tasks to help you to come to a greater intimacy with your reactivity. And the first is to actually just admit and to be honest about the fact that you do experience stress and reactivity and suffering and pain and loss and grief, and that there is some shit in this world that is difficult. And that's ultimately what I think the Buddha is saying in the first noble truth. I don't even think you got to church it up any more than that. I think the Buddha is saying like, have you noticed that this lived experience of being human is really fucking hard? And I think the reason why he's saying that is because it's very apparent to all of us. Yes. And he says, just in case you're not sure, here's a list of what I mean. He says, this is Dukkha or the first noble truth. He says, birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha or stressful. Sickness or illness is dukkha and stressful. Death is dukkha. 
Encountering what's not dear to you is dukkha. Separation from what is dear to you is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. And he says this self clinging to self, and we'll talk about that maybe another time, is dukkha. So he's saying basically is we have to kind of be honest about the fact that we we struggle through life. And the reason for this is because of impermanence. Because this body is actually a verb. It's not a noun. I don't get to maintain my youth and my health. I don't get that luxury. None of us get that luxury. We get a body that ages. We get a body that becomes ill and that has pain. I bet you can find in your body right now in this moment some discomfort. You know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you really look, I think you might find some subtle sensation of discomfort. You know, and even just the need to shift your butt cheek over a little bit so you can get a little relief from your body's discomfort. It's like you're stuck in this thing, you know? You're stuck in this this meat body. And the Buddha is, I think, very graciously not bullshitting us and just like, yeah, that's real, you know? That is a noble truth. It's actually worthy of your time and reflection to look at some of the existential, you know, quandaries and issues that we have to toil with as human beings. And so the truth of dukkha is not something to believe in, but it's actually a task. It's a task to fully know, to practice becoming intimate with that reality. You know, and so to just kind of wake up sometimes in our daily life to be like, man, this is really hard. You know, I'm really struggling. I'm really stressed out. I'm really overwhelmed. I'm really fearful. I'm really sad. I'm really in a lot of pain. I'm really experiencing grief, whatever it may be, to not turn away from that. And the Buddha talks about each of these tasks, the Four Noble Truths, is really three-step process. So in this task of fully knowing or embracing or being honest about the the stress or difficulty in our life, the Buddha is saying that there's really this three-step process to understanding. The first is to know it conceptually, just to know it as a thing to be aware of. And this form of understanding in Pali Sanskrit is called periyata, periyata, which means to understand the theory or the statement. So this can be helpful as you, you know, come into the Buddhist path, you'll hear the teaching on the first noble truth probably a million times over the course of your lifetime. And so just to know, to keep in mind that the Buddha's not really saying that it's going to be any other way than stressful. And, you know, you will have moments of pleasure, but you will have moments of pain. You will have moments of gain, but you will have moments of loss. And the reason why it's stressful is because of the impermanence. So just to know impermanence is a thing, and because of that, there's no stability, there's no ground to stand on that I can just fully relax and stay there. I'm constantly having to keep up with the change. To know that intellectually is one thing, but he says the second form of wisdom you develop around this truth or this task is to practice what's called in Pali Sanskrit, pati pati, which means the practice of actually coming into an intimate closeness with the dis-ease, the dissatisfaction, the stressful nature of the present experience. 
So to actually come into it and to feel it, to fully know it, that this is called Dukkha Parinya, to actually fully know what it's like to live in that change. And this is counter to everything in our being. When we're experiencing pain and difficulty and sadness and loss and breakups and all these things, the last thing we ever want to do is to sit with that feeling. It's still on my list is the last thing on the list that I'm willing to do. I hate to admit it, but it just is. It's like, you know, try to intellectually think your way through it, doesn't work. Try to distract yourself from it, fuck, didn't work. You know, try to ignore it, didn't work. And it's like, oh, okay, I just have to feel sad, fine. That's what the Buddha means by fully know, to actually come into the experience. And through that process, we can start to see what's inarguable about it and what do we actually have an ability to respond wisely to. You know, that this brings us into the second noble truth, which is how we relate to our vulnerable condition, how we relate to our uncertain condition of being human beings is really where our happiness lies. And so we have to start to see that when we get caught up in trying to fix, manage, or control, right, to just try to get through this next thing, this next bit of stress on, you know, finally I'm going to get through it and get onto the other side and then I can be okay. You know, that when we approach life postponing our happiness for some other moment, some other experience that's other than this, that that's actually the cause of our suffering. The reason why life is stressful is because it's actually to live with impermanence means to let go of preference. And that's deep. You know what I mean? Like to live with experience, impermanence means to let go of our preference. To say instead of I want this to be or why can't this be or why doesn't this happen or why am I so this or why are you so that to actually just live with the dis-ease, the dissatisfaction, to not react, to actually have compassion and care for our predicament. That's the only way that we free ourselves from unnecessary suffering in life. To fully accept, to radically accept things as they are. And I don't care how good I get it at conceptually understanding this, to actually come in, that's why I talked about those three types of understanding, to know it conceptually, but to try to actually radically accept the present experience, you know, to actually not fight or try to argue against what's inarguable. It means that I have to really let go and let myself be taken over by life. You know, but in the not fighting, that's where the Buddha calls that freedom. You know, he calls that liberation. He calls that nirvana, nibbana, which means literally, this is the third noble truth. It means the ceasing of reactivity. It means not fighting. It means actually giving up or extinguishing the fire. And this is you know, you, you can tell even as I'm talking right now, it's like, this is why we call this the, the super mundane wise view or the ultimate truth of wise view is that in our relative world, we do want to have preferences. 
we do have things that we enjoy. We do have things that we feel are just in the relative sense. And that's true. And the Buddha is acknowledging that as the truth of karma. You know, what you do has a consequence. How you respond to things has consequence. You know, if you can move through the world and your preferences in a skillful way, that's karma. But this ultimate truth is that we have to really give up our preferences and realize that there's no, you know, we're all, Ajahn Sachita, one of my teachers said, we're all heading to the same pl- place and that's six feet under. And then he'll laugh, let out a big laugh. <laughs> there's something really funny about seeing a monk that's been practicing for 40 years just tell you we're all heading to the same place and that's six feet under. But it's true, right? What is all this, all of our preferences, what, what is that going to end up in at the end of the day? You know, so I get a bowl of ice cream, but then it's gone or I get a relationship and then it's, you know. So in the meantime, we enjoy these things. I want a relationship. I have a relationship. I have a child. I have a car. I have things that I enjoy. But we have to ultimately know that they're uh, impermanent. You know, that 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 to gain something means that we're going to lose something. And we've got to learn how to show up in that vulnerable place in life. There's no intimacy without the risk of loss. And sometimes we notice this even holds us back from doing things. You ever notice that? That's the other end of thing that's more subtle is like, I'm so afraid of losing something that I don't even try. I don't even try to get into a relationship or to go for the promotion or to move to another city or to go out and meet new people or whatever it is, fear because I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to, to lose something. And the Buddha is saying, well, you know, you already have. That's what, that's what this world is. And uh, Mikey told a story the other day in our heart practice group where he talked about Ajahn Chah, this meditate, Thai meditation master, had this cup, this uh, glass cup that he used to always drink out of. And all the monks, you know, they're supposed to just eat out of these bowls and they're not really supposed to have any possessions. And so one day one of Ajahn Chah's students uh, came to him and said, why do you, why do you have this cup? It seems to be that you're always drinking out of the same cup and I see you holding it up and looking at the light through it and you seem to really be admired by it. He's like, do you have any attachment to your cup? You know, what's your relationship to that cup? And Ajahn Chah said, I, he said, I love this cup. I enjoy this cup and I can enjoy this cup because I know that it's already broken. And this may sound just something that a spiritual person might say, but I think that Ajahn Chah really had uh, the awareness that in order to really love something, we have to do it without attachment. And we have to really wake up to this reality that we can't ever have things be permanent. And so it doesn't mean that we sit back in an indifferent gaze on the world. We, that's to, to be avoidant is to be fearful. It's the same thing. I'm afraid of attack. You know, I'm afraid of loss. And so I try not to engage. Or we have this other experience where we think that our happiness is going to finally be found in something. And so we just keep chugging along, getting more, another hit of experience only to find that they're not ultimate fulfill, ultimately fulfilling. So we have to learn how to loosen our grip. And that's basically the teaching here is that we try to hold our life with an open fist. 
And so we're able to let things come. We're able to experience things and we have to let things go. The Buddha talks about three types of reactivity that we tend to get caught up in. One is this addictive seeking of sensory pleasure. So this is pleasant sights and pleasant smells and pleasant tastes and pleasant feelings and pleasant thoughts and pleasant sounds. The mind is constantly looking for comfort. And we go along just in this addictive cycle of one hit after another, one pleasant sight after one pleasant feeling after one pleasant thought, one pleasant smell. And it's just this never ending addiction to pleasure. And so that's one way that we get caught in reactivity is they call it kama tanha, which means an, uh, craving for sensory input to get something to fill. You ever feel like you're just filling some hole? You know, it's just like, there's this, I, we call it the big empty. That's actually what dukkha means. The actual etymology of it is, it means big empty. And it comes from the, the, the term, many of y'all know, when the axle doesn't fit right into the wheel well of a wagon cart wheel. So there's this bumpiness, there's this big empty space that can't be filled. That's kind of interesting to think about dukkha that way. The Buddha is basically saying that there is this big empty aspect of life. There's a groundlessness to life. And instead of embracing the big empty, we try to fill it. We go out and into the world and we say, you know, maybe this will work. And it does for a second. And that's the, that's the delusion is that it seems to work, but it's, so fleeting. I talked about this last week, uh, these food scientists that they learn to make the most complex flavor profile that has the biggest reward, dopamine reward for your brain in the first second that you taste something. But then they put all these other chemicals and things in the food to try to make that flavor die down really quick. So you get this big hit that fills your big empty and then the big hit goes away really quickly. And so that's why you can't eat just one potato chip is because, you know, if you pay attention next time you eat maybe something like potato chips or Sour Patch Kids, some of the shit that I love to eat, <laughs> is that they, they actually, the, the biggest hit of the flavor comes almost immediately. And then it kind of dies down and then it lingers. And so this is Kama Tanhas. It's like we get this little hit and it only f fulfills us for a moment. The other way that we get reactive and, and um, crave through our world is uh, what's called bawatanha, which means craving for existence. And this is a big one. This is what me and my wife was talking about, what we get caught up in is, what's the next thing that we can do that's going to fill the big empty? You know, some new identity I want to try on, you know, maybe I'll you know, move towns and start a new Dharma center, or maybe I'll, you know, do a training or a workshop, or maybe I'll write a book. And again, the Buddha is saying that none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but it's our relationship. It's when we think that this is what's going to be it. Finally, you know, do you ever find that your mind says that once you get something else, you'll be happy? You know, once I... I always feel like I'm between things. It's like right now is often not good enough to my mind. If I could just be 
have another degree or a different you know job or more attention, more praise, more status, more existence. This is the realm of social media. You know what I mean? And it's not because social media inherently is craving for existence, but we are. So you see it. Just turn that thing on and look at all the selves, all the identities that we, you know. And so it doesn't mean that you want to get to a place where you have no self or no social media, but to just be, be really be really interested in when the mind is trying to crave for some identity that's going to finally be good enough. You know what I mean? Like this shame that we experience is very subtle. It's like, when am I going to be good enough? And so the last thing that the Buddha talks about with uh, craving is looking at craving for non-existence, vibhavatanha, which means you know, not wanting to exist, not wanting to be in our current state, our current place. You know, and this is really subtle and really hard to toil with too, because, you know, in its extreme, this can enter the realm of suicidality and, you know, depression. I'm no stranger to these states of mind. You know, so we want, we want a way out. We want a way out. And if we feel like there's no hope, you know, if we view the Buddhist teachings even as this pessimistic, oh, life is suffering and there's nowhere to go. And this is where we get in the other trap, the other side of the coin where the, we, we get caught in the, how can I get out then? And the Buddha says, there is no out. All escape routes are blocked, unfortunately. There's no way out. There's only a way through. And that's the middle path. This is hopeful, right? He says, we have to embrace the pain that you feel. You have to learn to care. I'm sorry, but you have to. You have to learn to have compassion for the pain. That's it. And he says, basically, caring is enough. That's all you can do is care. What a great, you know, I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to be a perfect Buddhist. I don't have to meditate every day. You know, I just have to care about how hard it is to be me sometimes. You know, and that's all I can do is sit with those feelings, embrace the dukkha, let go of the reactivity, which is the second task to let go of the reactivity. And then the third is to behold the ceasing. When we feel that opening up and we can just care and we can just be in the experience. We experience this see, this extinguishing of the fight. We don't have to fight. We don't have to struggle. We get to actually give up. We get to give up. And give up's a tr- tricky word, but I've been liking using it better than let go lately. I don't know why, but I think it can be dangerous because giving up sometimes sounds like you just stop doing anything. But it's, it means give up the fight. Give up the struggle. Give up all the extra shit that the mind just throws on top. You know, the story about me and how I'm doing. It's just all, just give up. You know, it helps me. I don't know why. I just tell my mind, just give up. You're just scared. Just be scared. God, it's so much easier to just be scared instead of try to be, you know, whatever my fear is afraid I'm going to be or not going to be. 
It's so much easier to just be lonely instead of try to, you know, find the the one that's going to finally make me not feel alone anymore. You know, because then you get in a relationship and, you know, you find out that you wish you were alone. And then you have a craving for non-existence. Too much relationship. Too, where's me? I don't get a self. You know, so no matter where we're at, we're just, the mind is just so unsatisfied and we can just give up and be like, fuck, all right, it's just like this right now, right in the middle of it. And we're going to need some help. So this isn't just a theory. Remember, I kind of just go off on all my thoughts about the Four Noble Truths, but it's a practice. So this is why I, I front loaded the talk by talking about awareness is the, the faculty by which wisdom is cultivated. You know, so if we can actually slow down and tune in and we can start to actually see the subtle ways that our mind, you know, tries to keep us safe by clinging to pleasant experiences, craving after pleasant experiences, one after another, you know, the mind tries to keep us safe and satisfied by avoiding discomfort, avoiding conflict, avoiding you know, some of the pain, the fear, the sadness. And when we actually can just turn towards and give up, we give up the wanting things to be different. We just settle into it. You know, we learn how to be more present with the pain of our lives, with the change of our lives. And we learn how to navigate it with this eightfold path. This is the path to cultivate. That's the task there. So we embrace dukkha. We embrace suffering. We let go of reactivity or we give it up. We experience some freedom of not having to fight anymore and we have to keep practicing because as soon as this talk goes in one ear, I don't know if any of it made any sense, but if it did, as soon as you get it, you're going to forget it if you're anything like me. And that's just why the Buddha says the Dharma, this, this, this coming into this experience of what he realized that created this deep transformation, that's why he says it's subtle. It's subtle. And it's hard to see. And he says that people don't want to see it because it goes against their tendency, he says, to delight and revel in their place. They're craving so strong and so subtle that they they still think that they can find happiness somewhere other than here. And we call the present moment the groundless ground because it's just coming back into right now it's like this. So he says, you know, this dharma is subtle, hard to see, sensed by the wise, not confined by thought. That's an interesting thing. This, this is not some, an intellectual exercise. He says, but it's, um, he says it's subtle. And so we practice cultivating this wise view through meditation. And here's the good news is that the, the simple prescription for helping us to embrace dukkha is mindfulness. You know, to come back into the present moment with a curious awareness and open awareness of, right, you know, what, what is it? What is it that's happening right now? How is it? How am I relating to what's happening right now? And what does it need? What's the wise response to what's happening? So hopefully some of this made sense. I just wanted to continue this conversation and maybe we'll go from here down the rest of the Eightfold Path. We'll see.